So, Ethan, are you ready to head back to the uh, well-air-conditioned metropolis of Notch, Vermont? I'm so excited to go back to Vermont. Even though there's no air conditioning, you'll be debating in tents. I mean, the tents are really nice. I think it's cool to be out in nature, and there's a huge, you know, mountain view, and you can see everything. But the inside of the Coolidge Foundation, like the actual building, is really well air-conditioned. That's true. I mean, that was one of my favorite parts about it last year. Was I the air conditioning. <laughs> so true. Oh, my gosh. I, I know. It's bad. I should love the history. I should love the importance of Calvin Coolidge's birthplace. Man, it was hot in Vermont in July last year. And the food. The food is so good, too. The cheese and everything at the Cheese Ooh. Factory. Amazing. Oh, well, I'm excited that you and four other folks from our school and four others from Thales Apex, nine students and two coaches, we're all going to head to Vermont together in July. Yeah, I'm so excited. It's going to be awesome. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of What's the Res, an ongoing conversation about the current resolutions in the world of high school debate. My name is Josh Herring. I'm a debate instructor and debate coach and humanities instructor at Thales Academy in Rollsville, North Carolina. I'm joined today by my co-host, Ethan Delves. So excited to be here. It's great. Uh, we are here today to discuss the Coolidge Cup resolution, which reads, Resolved, the U.S. federal government should adopt a policy of unilateral free trade. Oh, this is going to be the resolution for the 2019 Coolidge Cup, which will take place the first week of July in 2019. I was emailing Jared Rhodes, the director of debate for Coolidge last week, and he said this is looking like the biggest and best Coolidge Cup yet. Awesome. It's going to be good times. Well, before we get there, uh, Ethan, did you see our listener feedback email? Yeah, I did. I thought it was actually really good feedback. It had some really good insight, and he definitely took his time to write a really long message for us, too. He did. This is a guy named Dave, who uh, I, I'm, uh, I'll read just a couple of the things that he said. He was focusing on our adversity score episode. Uh, he said, I think you could have made much more about the fact that two students with the same combined score, base SAT plus adversity score, are likely to have very different scholastic aptitudes and different abilities to succeed in the college academic environment. He went on to tell us about his time, his experience as a former student athlete, and uh, he said, quote, I've seen firsthand how ill-suited for university academics some athletes were whose academic credentials alone would not have allowed them to be accepted to the university. Their acceptance was due to the boost their athletic ability gave them. The adversity score will essentially do the same thing, but on a much broader level. Uh, well... Uh, thank you, Dave, for your feedback. We're glad that you enjoyed the episode and uh, hope that you want to send us uh, another email if this you like this good one. feedback. Yeah, this was really good. It so was. I'm happy with that. All right, well, I, I know we're both excited about this resolution, so yeah. let's get right to it, Let's Ethan. get to this. What, uh, what, what do you see in this resolution initially? The first thing that popped out to me is unilateral because you hear debates about free trade all the time. We have you know, the trade war with China going on, and all the way back to Calvin Coolidge talked a lot about tariffs. I think he was... I'm sure I'll be corrected by someone if I get this wrong, especially for the Coolidge Cup. But he was pro-protection, and um, you see, so you see debates about this all over the place. But when you add the word unilateral in there, I think it changes things a little bit, and then you're you're forced to look at the 
the implications of the resolution and the impacts that you would see there a little bit more closely. So I think that's really good. And um, the number one thing that I have to say about this resolution is I think that there's good ground on both sides. I think unilateral really helps with that, but the, the protection side or the restricted trade side and the free trade side both have enormous amounts of ground. And I think that you could sway a judge either way on this resolution too. I don't think that there's one side that's particularly heavy in evidence or heavy in, in persuasion. I think it's pretty even. So I think this is a wonderful resolution from the Coolidge Foundation. It's really well chosen. I agree. I, I like this one a lot better than last year's resolution, in part because I, I have trouble thinking about the fairness of last year's resolution, which really was a comparative resolution where we were comparing for socialism versus uh, democracy. Capitalism. That's right. It was socialism versus capitalism. And the problem there is that I mean, honestly, if you're at a reasonably conservative economic think tank like the Coolidge Foundation, does the socialist side really have a chance at winning the grand prize? Socialists, I mean, it was hard to argue socialism, but man, did Kareem O'Day make an amazing case for it in the in the final round of the last year's Coolidge Cup. I was blown away. He, he really did. And that's not to say that Darvesh did not deserve his win. They right. were both very, very good. Yeah, I debated Darvesh, and he was absolutely amazing. I definitely deserved to lose my round against I, him, but... It was it was hard. Uh, if uh, at least last year he was intending to go on to University of Chicago, and uh, maybe if on some odd circumstance he happens to hear this episode, he could uh, he could send us an email and let us know how he's doing now. Yeah. But I think this resolution is is going to be we're going to have a very interesting final round. However, that goes down because both sides will really have a have a good emotional and practical and factual appeal to the judges. That's another thing that you mentioned emotions and factual appeal. I think there's a lot more than just economics at play here. I think there's a small ethical argument that could be made maybe for one side or the other that we'll get into later. But while economics you can see is is like the dominant focus for this round, I think there's tons of different avenues that you could take with this resolution that would still remain on topic. So again, to kind of add to the weight on both sides, I think it's really good. No, that's true. Well, let's get into some definitions. And uh, this this may be a just obvious from the get-go, but I want to make sure we're going through the basics. Uh, we're starting with the U.S. federal government as our acting agent. So we are from the get-go looking at something to do on a national and really in this case an international uh, relationship. And that's looking at something to do with the way that the United States acts towards other countries. Right. I think that it's really good to keep this resolution national. I think that's a a fair boundary to put around the resolution, so that's mm -hmm. a good one. And if I remember correctly, that uh, the Constitution also talks about Congress having the power to regulate interstate and international commerce. So this mm. has a there's a constitutional part of that resolution as well. Also good. But uh, Ethan, what's going on with anything interesting in the phrase "should adopt"? It's an advocacy point that's calling for an economic shift. So this kind of should is less of a moral kind of should that you would encounter in maybe Lincoln Douglas debate. Mm -hmm. And I think we're focusing predominantly on on economic benefits and should is like a wise counsel sort of idea for so reading it from the resolution the united states federal government should adopt a policy of unilateral free trade would be it would be a wise decision kind of should so it's right. a little bit different than, than i guess i usually do in tournaments because i'm more of a moral should kind of person with ld but this one is more of wise counsel is what i would say oh that makes that makes a lot of sense and it then explains really why it's going for a policy that we're not and this resolution is not itself stating a policy. It's not laying out the parameters of the policy necessarily, but it is arguing for policy in the sense of a guiding principle that the executive departments and then Congress will use in guiding their legislation and their regulations that they pass going forward. That's one thing I really like about the Coolidge Foundation 
is that they're, they focus a lot on guiding principles and these guiding principles, so you don't have to get into the nitty gritty of all of these policies because that's for policy debate, but obviously this is not policy format, but the guiding principles are important governmental, I guess, you know, principles, I guess, to, mm-hmm. even though I'm being redundant, but to think about when you're, when you're the U.S. federal government and whether or not you want to adopt free trade or have restrictions. Well, it, it reminds me of one of the things we were talking about in logic class today about the difference between deductive reasoning and inductive reasoning, where, yeah. where the Coolidge Foundation tends to come up with resolutions that are more on that deductive reasoning principle, where we're arguing about the grand principle rather than the specific inductive examples. Yeah, and I think with deductive reasoning, you said we could find things out for more certainty than we can with inductive. If that initial deductive principle is true. So in this case, we have a resolution that if that's true, then all of the policies that follow the principle are going to be successful policies. But of course, that's why it's And that's where debate comes in. Exactly. Okay, well then, uh, Ethan, you mentioned uh, a lot about the unilateral a few moments ago. What what really does that term unilateral add to free trade? What what does that necessitate for this resolution? Unilateral is sort of a boundary on what free trade actually means. And I think it's not a boundary that restricts it down. I think it's more of a boundary that expands free trade. And this is because it means complete free trade. So it's regardless of free or fair practices from any other country. What it basically means is that the United States federal government should adopt free trade completely and holistically for itself without minding what other countries are doing. So that doesn't mean that we need to wait for China, say, to adopt free trade, but we're just going to do it regardless of what anyone else does. So really, that means the United States is taking this as its acting principle regardless of what uh, the United States does. Exactly. Exactly. Now you showed me an interesting quote earlier. I don't know if you have it handy about the, uh, do. the rocks and harbor. Yep, I that, have that. that might be, this might be a good place for that quote. So this is from Essays on the Theory of Employment, and I think it's by Joan something. I, I could definitely add that in later, but um, I got it. Let's see. It says the popular, so quote starting here, the popular view that free trade is all very well so long as all nations are free traders, but that when other nations erect tariffs, we must erect tariffs too, is countered by the argument that it would be just as sensible to drop rocks in our own harbors because other nations have rocky coasts. I think that's really cool. And I also almost died trying to find that quote because I lost it on my iPad <laughs> and I spent all of debate literally tracking that down. Uh, I'm glad you found it because I think it's it's a really good metaphor. Uh, it, it lets us see, uh, or it might have been a simile, I don't remember the wording, but it, it's a, that device really, that image shows us that these tariffs or barriers to trade are not really helpful for anybody. And so the affirmative side is really advocating the United States should go ahead and just open up as many avenues for trade as possible, regardless of reciprocity. Yeah, and there's there's two things I'm going to add there. One, it's the official, so it's a book. It's called Essays in the Theory of Employment by Joan Robinson. Mm-hmm. And the I think the rocks in the harbor is actually a really good analogy because it's it's saying that just because one country or puts tariffs on, on their products and exports on, or sorry, tax on imported goods, doesn't mean that we need to hurt ourselves, which we'll probably back up with arguments later, talking about why tariffs mm-hmm. on one side of the spectrum will, are actually harmful. So under the case that that's obviously biased towards, it doesn't mean we need to put tariffs on ourselves and harm ourselves, or I guess impose tariffs on other countries, because that just is a net loss on both sides, so it doesn't make sense. But well, again, that's only one side of the resolution. So. Fair. That's fair. Before we get any further, though, let's. Um, we, we, uh, we've already mentioned it a couple times. Um, have you, Ethan? Have you been following the current trade war with China? What's, I have. What's been going on there? Give us, give us the story. The trade war with China has pretty much been a, a progressive increasing of of tariffs. 
starting with the United States on China and then China retaliating. And there's been different percentages. I think now we're up to about 25%, mm-hmm. but it could very well change by the time this episode is out or by the time it gets to your ears, listeners. Um, so it's a, it's a current events thing. Tariffs are increasing between the United States and China, and we're just starting to get these um, sort of commentary articles and articles relating to this saying, I think it's a tax on 600, it's 300 to $600 billion of Chinese goods. I think it's been raised more. I think, I, I think, I think you're about, right, because yesterday when I was looking at some of this to prep for my uh, my interview with Tyler Bodden, the number was 250 to 300 billion. Okay. But there seems to be a lot of disagreement about the exact number of goods that we are importing from China. And there's probably some indirect like sort of principle at play there, too, because mm-hmm. that could be the direct influence, but then I guess there's so many sure. things you could lose track of. But regardless, it's the United States beginning to put tariffs on Chinese goods and then retaliation on one side. And there was a... Um, a discussion between U.S. and Chinese leaders, but that did not lead to the tariffs getting taken away. But it seems that both sides would like to get rid of these tariffs, or at least the Chinese really want to get rid of it. The United States is holding our ground, though, I guess I, you could say. I, I kind of am looking at this more as uh, almost as if it's an international game of chicken. Yeah. And where, where both sides are rushing towards each other and President Trump versus President Xi, they both assume that the other will blink. And so far, both are holding their sides. And unfortunately, it seems like the loser in this contest is neither the Chinese government nor the American government, but the American consumer. Yeah, I mean, at the very least, there's, I think there's too many losers in this situation because, you know, China has to pay more, America has to pay more. And that obviously translates onto not only producers, but the consumers as well. So it, it seems like an overall mess. But I think the one thing that so Trump is definitely putting his foot down, you know, he I think that's one thing he's extremely good at is, is putting his foot down. At the same time, you're getting a lot of commentary articles. I know I'm saying commentary, but I really mean like reports and analysis or right. articles that right. are just recognizing the immediate economic impacts of what these tariffs are doing. And I, a, a general trend that I see is tariffs give a very short term benefit. And then it seems as history would tell you and as current events will tell you that on, over the long term, tariffs are not a reliable principle. Well, that's that's probably a good place to shift to really more of a discussion of tariffs, and I, I suspect we'll circle back around to to China here in a few minutes. But let's let's talk about tariffs for a bit. Uh, so tariffs, of course, are a tax on an import, uh, and so anything a tariff on a national scale, like we're discussing, would mean that the uh, good coming in from another country would be taxed either a percentage or a dollar amount. Uh, on that, and then that's the tax that has to be paid for that foreign good to be sold inside a particular country. Right. Now, Ethan, is this is is this still a good idea, or is this an old-fashioned idea that really should be retired? What do you what do you think? I'm going to go. So I have a very limited knowledge on the subject as of now because we're just getting into some debate research, and since we have touched on it before, I'm going to refer to John Maynard Keynes. And um, he says that, so this is from a JSTOR article that's basically giving a summary of his opinions on, go ahead and find the title. Uh, I'm looking particularly, this is from the Journal of Economic History. We found it on JSTOR, but the actual journal there is the Journal of Economic History. But keep going. He says that he's frightfully afraid of protection or tariffs as a long-run policy. And then I'll quote directly from him. He says, "How how far am I prepared to risk long period disadvantages in order to help get some immediate position? Or... Yeah, help to to help the immediate position. That was a terrible reading of the quotes, <laughs> but at the same time, the the gist of that idea is that he's saying the tariffs could do something, and he's specifically referring to um, increasing employment in the short run. But mm-hmm. in the long run, the economy, he's afraid to use tariffs as a long term policy because it gives 
more um, prevalent risks in the long run. Right, because what, what those tariffs do is they ultimately end up raising the cost of goods in general, where if you have a you have a uh, an indigenous product inside a country, and then you have a foreign competitor, well, people would naturally gravitate towards whichever had the lower cost. But now the tariff raises the raises the cost to be somewhat equal, or maybe even the foreign one has is more expensive than the uh, than the indigenous product. Well, now the people are going to no matter the consumer has to end up paying more money regardless. The the now cheapest option is gone. And that means we've got value taken out of the economy, which but does could create some jobs, could create some greater uh, indigenous industry, and yet at the cost of rising prices for for the consumer. So we so as far as an established position goes, I'll challenge you a little bit here and ask. And why do you think so? Are there any macro, I guess, economic benefits for a tariff that you can see so far that putting a tariff on imported goods, increasing employment? maybe in a specific industry, do you see any benefits around there? Because I think as far as evidence so far goes, we found a lot of harms. That mm-hmm. And again, this isn't only about tariffs, because it, it does say um, adopt a policy of free trade. But tariffs are one of the main things that we need to be looking at too. Right, and they're any, certainly the one that's currently in the headlines a lot. Yeah, so any long-term economic benefits that tariffs would offer? Well, I think certainly the perspective there, and this is this is part of where I think President Trump has been rhetorically very creative and, and very, very wise, right? and that the, the tariffs certainly speak to people whose industries are no longer as competitive as they once were. So people who are in an industry, uh, let's say a traditional uh, steel steel works of some sort, mm-hmm. or or maybe a uh, I don't know um, maybe a, a factory that makes tires uh, and they they use rubber and but but there's a foreign competitor that's now far cheaper. Well, for them, a tariff may very well be a great thing because it keeps their jobs afloat. It keeps their industry going strongly. Well, this certainly has a lot of rhetorical appeal because, of course, no one wants to see people in their own country out of work. But it takes a bit of a mental shift, I think, to be able to recognize that on the more free market side of things, a tariff is actually punishing a, an efficient actor in the marketplace. Yeah, and I think Adam Smith, is, that's where he would agree with you in his Wealth of Nations book. I pulled a couple of quotes from there from a summary article that I found, and one, this quote specifically meets what you were just saying. It says, to promote the little interest of one little order of men in one country, it hurts the interest of all of the other orders of men in that country and of all men in other countries. So I, he's basically agreeing with you that tariffs can benefit a minority because it's an artificial restriction mm-hmm. imposed by the federal government to specifically promote one industry, but it comes at the cost of a lot of others. And sort of to relate that to the Cato article that I was reading earlier from the Cato Institute, it was saying that about 11 million jobs depend on the export of U.S. goods. And 11 the, million. Yeah, that was in 2016. So, and it also says that on the, it says something else, but it could be millions more. But I guess the, the direct number that they pulled without looking at any of the impacts was 11 million. So if those exports decrease, then we're going to end up in a, a, shrink, in a shrinking number of jobs and for those in that field. Again, as far as specifics go, because you would have to weigh that against how many jobs you would have gained in a different industry. Sure, and just look sure. at a purely jobs created, jobs lost kind of thing. So that's where a different economic perspective would come in, and you would focus not only on employment, but prices and the mm-hmm. how much is taken away from the consumer. 
Now, your Adam Smith quote's really interesting in part, I think, because Adam Smith wrote The Wealth of Nations in 1776, and he's right at the opening of the modern economics understanding. And the previous economic view is called mercantilism, and it was based on a universal practice of using gold as currency and the gold standard that really lasted up until the 20th century for a lot of countries. But mercantilism employed tariffs because the whole idea was that what you need to do if you want to have a wealthy country is keep gold inside your country's economic system. And so tariffs really penalize people who would bring in an, an item and then take the gold from, say, a British economic system into a French economic system. But that really assumes a limited amount of currency, which in a contemporary setting is no longer a legitimate assumption. You think that's a benefit of the contemporary setting is that we, we don't have to – we're not tied down by the physical gold standard so that we can let things in and out of the country and perhaps – establish more free trade and more economic benefit as a whole? That may certainly be a benefit. I, I we're, we're well outside the place where I have any kind of qualification or particular education to speak well on this, but Fair enough. Uh, I do think there, there, are other, there are other costs to getting rid of the gold standard, but certainly a much more flexible currency is, is one of the results of getting off of the gold standard. Okay. Well, today, of course, tariffs aren't really used to control the flow of gold, but instead they're used to encourage domestic purchases and really punish international competition. Uh, so that, that's, that's going to be quite interesting. Um, Ethan, I know you took economics last year. Did y'all cover the Austrian School of Economics? That was the textbook that we learned from, was the Austrian School of Economics. And uh, the, so the teacher that you interviewed yesterday, Tyler Bonner, was my teacher, and he is a huge proponent of the Austrian School of Economics. And I think that it makes a lot of sense. It was a really good class, and it definitely helps with my understanding of this resolution, too. Well, I was looking at one of the articles that uh, the Mises.org and the Von Mises Institute put out, and it, it gathered a string of interesting quotes uh, having to do with this. But looking at Henry Hazlitt and Friedrich Hayek, Milton Friedman, and other economists in the Austrian school, and they all look at tariffs really as this sense of uh, this mechanism that may be well-intentioned, but it really is punishing on the economy that actually employs the tariff. Yeah, and something that kind of just came to mind, too, is that tariffs are good for producers and not even all producers. It's good for certain producers because it mm -hmm. depends what products you place a tariff on. And it, the Austrian school and the Hayek, like all of these different schools that we put on this outline that we've discussed so far in the episode, are proponents of the consumers is the most important. The consumer has to make the decision, and that's what drives the natural marketplace towards success is because the people are deciding, and there's no artificial restraints, or less artificial restraints, I guess you could say, because no would probably be like a laissez-faire system, but on the market. And I, since Donald Trump is a businessman, I don't know what he did business in. I think he has a couple of hotels or something. And like, no, <laughs> do you he, know? He does. Yes. Okay. He does. But he has um, Trump Industries has he has hundreds of different projects right. all around the world, and most of which, oddly enough, seem to take losses. He he manages. His actual net worth is in the several millions of dollars. It may be more closer to hundreds of millions. But on his taxes, he manages to every year be able to declare a loss, which hmm. I have trouble really comprehending still. But anyway, I, yes, I, he has a lot of businesses. I Let's can see him that. being a high-up corporate official sympathizing with producers when, when times get tough and, and it, competition becomes harder because – 
competition is not something that I would think that businesses would particularly want to deal with. It's it's much easier to um, to have a tariff on a product and then your company is automatically benefited because the competition is shut out rather than contended with. But again, that hurts a lot of other producers and the consumer doesn't get to decide. But I think as an overall macroeconomic view, the Austrian school does a great job of establishing the importance of the consumer and the consumer's decisions in, in how that affects the, the true marketplace because there's many more consumers than there are producers and there's many more consumers that will be hurt by a tariff than there are consumer sorry producers that will be benefited by a tariff. So that means then for affirmative, they're really going to be looking at the uh, affirmative really is going to be looking at the Austrian school as a major source of perspective to kind of help with why we should have this position of unilateral free trade. Not even just the Austrian school, literally every think tank pretty much that you could look up on the internet. And Cato was literally talking about earlier how, what's this number? I'll pull it up right now. It said, I we can link the article in the show notes if I, in case I mess mm. it up. But it says that about 93% of top economists agree that free trade is a good policy. Again, unilateral was not in there, but the principle of free trade was there. So Mm -hmm. I'll give it some credit for that, even though it may not be a perfect plug into this resolution. So free trade is really looking like the dominant sort of thing, at least on the Internet now, especially with all of the tangible evidence we're gathering from Trump's recent um, tariff war or Mm -hmm. like trade war with China. At first, I think there was a small little, you know, little hump of of employment benefits maybe or like more employment i don't know what it was i'm not as far as the early trade war goes i know more about the later stages and the early stages but i think now we're starting to see the economic repercussions of this sort of thing and if this keeps on going forward maybe we would see costs raise on the consumer and this would be the oh i think we're already starting to see those costs because the most recent movement in that trade war has been to jump from 10 percent tariffs to 25 percent tariffs i think that happened already yeah yeah Yeah. that that was as in like just uh within this month of within the month of may that that jump occurred. I was looking at one article this morning that said this is going to, it was projecting that within a year, if this continues and is the new status quo, that's going to functionally work as a rate, as a tax on the American household at about 800 or so dollars per year, in addition that Americans will be paying for the exact same things that they have previously purchased. I can't see, so I can see the American public pushing hard enough on that to, to let the tariffs up a little bit. I think, just like you were saying earlier, this is seeing who blinks first, and Trump does not like to blink first. So as far as as far as that goes, like I'm not gonna call any shots here, I'm not gonna like place a bet, but I think he's gonna have trouble blinking first, and I think China is gonna have equally as much trouble blinking first. You know well, what I mean? And certainly for, for for President Trump, he has an election cycle coming up. So the election may may also have a, a factor here in terms of determining just how long is he willing to struggle with China. Uh, and maybe that means he want, he doesn't want to be seen as weak, so he doubles down and is not willing to uh, do give any ground. Or maybe this is the place to be seen as a wise leader who recognizes that perhaps he was a bit rash in pronouncing a 25% tariff. Who yeah, knows? but that looks weak to say that you were wrong. You know what I mean? Like That's why people never say they're wrong. It's because it looks like you're weak if you admit that you're wrong. Even though in reality that means you're stronger than you than, than someone who did the alternative. But I don't think Trump is one to to retrace his steps necessarily. Like I'm not saying in all situations. I'm saying in this particular situation, he's very, from what I can tell as far as the media goes, as far as what he's spoken on the subject so far, so again, no, no bias for or against him here, that he is very set on this trade war happening and him getting his way for it and America getting their way for it. So letting up in this specific instance may not be what I'm foreseeing, well, at least soon. You may very well be right. 
Um, but let's let's do um, now. There's at least I've seen one argument in favor of tariffs. Uh, are you familiar with the infant industry argument? We learned that as, at, from the perspective of the Austrian School of Economics in ninth grade with Mr. Bonin. It was awesome. Well, the, the, the argument is I know it, and jump in if, if uh, we need some examples or if I've, I've messed up a piece or two. But the argument is that certain industries really need to be protected until they have scaled up to the point where they are on par with the existing industries. And so that for a time, tariffs can actually be a helpful tool to prevent uh, new and competitive industries from being really stomped out uh, out of existence by the existing giants of industry. Yeah, I mean, that's a perfect analysis of what it means. It's almost like, it's called the infant industry. It's almost literally like a family with an infant. It's that it, the infant needs to be protected and fostered and nurtured before I can go into the real world as an adult. It's similar to the infant industry, where the industry being so small, you could, I'm not, I'm thinking of more in terms of a company, but I can see if you want to be competitive on the global market, you need to, what the argument is saying, you need to be protected for a while because jumping straight in with a big fish in the pond isn't going to do you any good and you'll probably get eaten right away. So you need time to grow and to become stronger before you're able to compete. And I think the trouble with, I, I don't know if I could refute this argument effectively, but I, I can see if it were to be refuted, I think I know from what angle someone would take on it. And I think that would be um, per a person making the infant industry argument and looking at the fact that this is not a domestic or this is not a national matter, but this is a matter of international sort of trade. And it may be different for an industry to be domestically competitive with other companies. Perhaps they would get a boost, even though you can't put a tariff on yourself, but maybe with some other policy as far as protecting it goes. Mm -hmm. But I think there's so many other different economic factors that would come from an international policy as far as trade between one country to another country goes that it might be a little bit different to make that argument on a, such a large scale. You may be right, but I think that, that a lot of that is going to tie to just how extensive is this word unilateral and how far does it go. Does unilateral free trade mean that we cannot have any restrictions on trade with anyone? Or does that mean that we are intentionally not putting tariffs on people? How that term is defined may very well govern how much access certain teams have to arguments. And I think the, the side opposing to unilateral free trade is going to want to extend that as far as possible because the more universal you make something, the easier it is to attack. That's true because you're, you're there. I'm sure there are particular cases where a tariff might make sense in a particular given context. Uh, and particularly as far you mentioned at the beginning, one of the, the moral argument here that we may need to get into, that too, the unilateral position really doesn't leave much room for being able to say, we morally disagree with this country's view on human rights or on the product that they're selling or the uh, deceptive financial practices they have. Instead, it just says, we will trade with anyone, anytime, at, at, without any government oversight or intervention. Yeah, so it's it's the idea that a simple, a small negation completely gets rid of the universal that we're talking mm -hmm. about here. And I think it's fair with how much evidence we have for free trade, the affirmatives literally being flushed in with all of his new evidence and how the, you know, the trade war isn't working. Like previous president said this, this happened in the past. Negative has a little bit of a boost with that word unilateral, which I think is fair to tip the scales in a more balanced mm -hmm. sort of direction. Um, but what the, the problem, or sorry, the solution to this is when you're faced with this kind of term and having to embrace something universally, we've both discussed this multiple times previously on the podcast. The best way to deal with this is by fully embracing your side and fully yep. like, well, not believing in, but taking on the, all of the arguments that your side has to offer and just going straight in with it, because that's what a debate is. Usually I would find that 
the answer to these things is usually a, a sometimes both situation. Like maybe a tariff would make sense here, it makes mm -hmm. sense here. But here you have a universal and a negation to that universal. So the best way is just fully encompass your side and just yep. go head to head. Break and just hold that burden of clash nice and tight and just go right to it. Well, let's get to a different uh, different kind of argument. I, I've, have you been following all this stuff with uh, the rare earths metals? That one is a little bit more confusing for me because I know China has tons of rare earth metals. Most of these are used to, to make things like iPhones and stuff, but I'm not sure where restricted free trade would hurt us the most. Well, so China has, so rare earth metals, I've been reading up on these for, uh, and we, we've got some notes here we'll put on in the show notes, or some articles. Uh, Yahoo.com has one about uh, entitled China Gears to Up to Weaponize Rare Earths Metals, and The Guardian came out with one, uh, an article this morning, entitled, or I'm sorry, it's yesterday on May 29th, entitled U.S.-China Trade, uh, What Are Rare Earth Metals, and What Exactly Is the Dispute? They, they knew the questions we yeah, would be asking. Yeah, they, they pretty much hit it right on the head. Well, the rare earths metals are are some really rare elements that are only, they're, they're not rare because they don't exist in uh, at all or are, are very rare, but they're rare in the sense that they only exist in certain pockets around the globe. The United States apparently, according to the Guardian article, has one rare earth uh, mine in California and we ship our rare earth metals to China for refining. <laughs> Well, so, that's genius. It is. Uh, it does. It may mean that if, if this trade war continues, that the United States needs to become much more independent if we're going to, in rare earths metals, if we're going to continue using those. And we may need to find a way to really refine those here. But China has about 70% of the globe's rare earths metals deposits within its territory, which, and where that gets really interesting. Uh, this is going to be if, if China cuts off United States access to rare earth metals or raises the price on them through these tariffs, that's going to be really costly to the U.S. Uh, here's just a couple of things that The Guardian explains these metals are used for. They're used in healthcare, including surgical supplies, pacemakers, cancer treatment drugs, and rheumatoid arthritis medication. Uh, these drugs, these Metals are also found in telescope lenses, aircraft engines, and used as catalysts in auto exhaust systems to help reduce emissions. Neodymium is often used to produce high-powered infrared lasers for national defense, while military suppliers such as BAE systems use rare earths to produce sensors for missile systems. Bay systems. Yes. That's hilarious. Uh, <laughs> I didn't even, think, I didn't even <laughs> see that. Bay systems. I can't take it as seriously after reading it like that. My well, bad. well, add in the fact that those are missile systems intended to uh, guide missiles to blow up cities, and maybe that'll help just a tad. Do you know what bay means? Like the, have you heard? That? Is that oh, one no. of the things? Like, I missed this. You're not I mean, miss it. What, what, what is it? What, does what it do mean? you think it means? Uh, it meant boyfriend, something like uh, that last year. Nope. What That's does it not, mean now? It means before anyone else. It's just like what? a term that you give your what? boyfriend or girlfriend to say like you're like before anyone else, so you're bae kind of thing. Oh, that yeah. makes so much more sense. So you're now. close, I'll, you know. At least in the in the realm of possibility. Yeah. Anyways, well, missiles. <laughs> <laughs> missiles. Yes. Well, uh, this is part of why the uh, there's a few different uh, United States departments that have come out saying this actually is a crisis because we need these rare earths metals as a matter of national defense. So China is hitting back with a – they're hitting the U.S. government right where it hurts in our ability to – Do they do to, this? Is this like – Oh, yeah, yeah. The, well, that's the thing. This, the articles over the last couple of days are responding to an article that came out in a Chinese newspaper talking about maybe we'll do this. So China might be blowing smoke. Possible. Always possible. Okay. Well, 
if we have one of these pockets of rare earth mineral deposits, I'm not saying this would sustain us for the rest of, you know, when we need it to, but this could be an argument possibly for tariffs because we this would turn domestic production, instead of shipping our stuff off to China, it would actually keep it within the country, sort of the mercantilist idea, except with neodymium instead of gold. Maybe and, so. You know, I mean, maybe it could be twisted that way. Who knows? Possible. Now, just out of curiosity, Ethan, let me ask you this. Uh, do you have an iPhone? I do. It's in my pocket right now. Okay. Uh, how much would your iPhone sell for on the market today? It's a little cracked, you know, so like... Uh, I don't know. It's a 7 Plus, though. We got it restored. 500 Okay. So if you were to sell your iPhone for 500 bucks, and say if you go to get a new one, and the new one is now, I don't know, $1,700, would you pay for it? If I had 500 Yeah. No. Well, uh, this might actually affect people. I don't know people's, about you. <laughs> I, no, I would never do that. I, I, I think it's ridiculous that iPhones now cost this much. I'm on a uh, plan where I'm actually renting my iPhone, and I'm paying like... 20 bucks a month to rent my iPhone and I can always upgrade whenever I want. The, the, hmm. yeah, it's a T-Mobile's jump plan. It's been great. But I raised that because the Guardian goes on to uh, explain that, quote, the consumer goods giant Apple is dependent on rare earths for component parts, including cameras and speakers. So if you like the camera and the speakers on your iPhone, it may become more expensive in the future. Yeah, especially, I mean, unless China's blowing smoke. But as far as I can tell, they've got a lot of room to hit us back with, with these tariffs because they have pretty much everything we need. Yeah, and so maybe the answer there is honestly to, I mean, this seems to me to push me entirely over to the affirmative side. And I'm say, with you. Yeah, This is not really worth doing. But uh, now... There's a lot of articles that have already started looking at the global implications of an ongoing trade war. Uh, did you see the United Nations study on this question? I don't think so. No, I haven't seen that yet. Yeah, it, it's a United Nations group called UNCTAD. UNCTAD. Uh, UNCTAD. Interesting. And they, they just released a, a study, uh, quote, the study estimates that of the $250 billion in Chinese exports subject to U.S. tariffs, about 82% will be captured by firms in other countries, about 12% will be retained by Chinese firms, and only about 6% captured by U.S. firms. What they're getting at, they did a, a study trying to figure out what will be the actual result of this, and the result is other countries will pick up the business. This hmm. is not going to lead to a bunch of United States, uh, country, or United States firms getting more business. So if China puts tariffs on U.S. industries, that's great for Indian or Portuguese or Spanish or British companies. Is then the China will buy from them instead. Exactly. Hmm. Or, or rather, the, yeah, if, if China, yeah, China will buy from them. And the same goes if the United States puts a tariff on Chinese companies. That's great for Canadian manufacturing. <laughs> so we're doing the world a favor here. Sort of, but we're also not helping us. Um, the uh, there's a, a uh, IHSmarket.com argued that this will actually end up uh, costing the American taxpayer roughly $800 a year, in, uh, and that's only going to increase over time. Yeah, and when I was reading this Cato article earlier, um, just for the complete opposite side of this, I think it's a good time to bring in the statistic. It was saying that with the free trade policy, again, not unilateral, but with free trade in general, it said that it would be like giving every American $260 extra a year. And that's in saved costs to the consumer, I'm guessing, is like the number one factor that that comes from. Okay. But um, that's that's with free trade and making it the market competitive enough to have costs being lowered. And this might even be a good place to bring in another one of um, Adam Smith's quotes. 
where he said, to prohibit a great people, however, from making all that they can of every part of their own produce or from employing their stock and industry in a way that they judge most advantageous to themselves is a manifest violation of the most sacred rights of mankind. So he definitely hard hits that at the end. But I think the essence of his quote is getting at how people have the right to decide what they want to buy and decide what they want to sell. And that's the, that's the essence of the free market right there. And when you have competition like that, the Cato Institute slaps a number on that, which is an expected extra $260 to every American per year as in the amount of saved money that you have mm. from a competitive market. So who knows if that's actually the amount, but that's what Cato Institute says. Maybe it's a good number so to start So the more with. free the market is, the lower prices are dropping, and the more that's actually leading to savings for the consumer. And this is actually, so I just found this again in my um, outline. It says $260 of extra spending money. Ooh. So that's a huge difference because when you have $260 of extra spending money, where does that go? It goes straight back into the in the industry. Mm-hmm. back, And who knows if that goes back to China as far as producing stuff goes. But for American companies, that means extra profit, and that means a growing economy, and then all the implications of you know GDP and all this stuff. So then the further, the, the longer this trade war continues, the more it really seems to hurt everybody. Everybody, yeah, because it may hurt the consumers first, but then that's going to hurt different industries. It's going to hurt different industries because they have less money, but it mm-hmm. may not hurt the industry that the tariff was specifically designed for because they're, if, it's the, if it's the right type of industry, the consumer still has to buy things from them, like steel, right. like food. You, those are things that you need to make buildings, you need to eat. So really it's just an artificial thing, an artificial restraint that you still need to buy from. It's like water. Like you have well, to buy water. You know, that, that's a really Austrian observation in the sense that the tariff may be intended to protect a certain industry, but the Austrian school typically relies on the they, – they lean a lot on the law of unintended consequences because you can never really tell what's actually going to happen when you put a policy in place until you put the policy in place. So they would prefer to not put new policies in place in order to avoid unintended consequences. So if you put a tariff or a trade restraint in place, that's really only going to cause additional problems rippling throughout the economic sector. I can, I think so far I'll stick to the fact that the industry a tariff is intended to protect, it will protect it at least in the short term mm. because people will still be um, focusing mm-hmm. on buying from there, but, or maybe possibly they'll find another trade partner. Maybe we get some, but I, so... I was going to say if we could find someone else to trade with, but what it seems like is that each country is specialized in certain areas. We get most of our steel, I think, from Mexico. I could be wrong, but I think it's Mexico or Canada. And um, as far as China goes, you know, that's the neodymium and all the rare earth minerals. So maybe it would be more difficult to find an alternative trading partner. Well, or- especially, uh, I mean, we, I was looking at some of this earlier today. Market Watch has a, uh, they, they just updated their list of all the stuff the U.S. imports from China. Oh man! Uh, I mean, we, we that's probably a depressing list. It, it is because we import we import so much, so many manufactured goods from China. Uh, we we have really shipped all of that over to China, which is part of I think what can get to some ground on neg. We've spent almost this whole episode affirming. AF is just so good. Like it, it just feels good. You know, it's an idealistic view. How could you not want to? Well, it is an idea. That's the trick. I think that's the trick with an idealistic view. So let's 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 play devil's advocate for a moment. Let's do give some good ground on neg. Yeah. So uh, I think the the first thing that comes to my mind is one that I don't know that I can explain terribly well, but I'm at least going to try. Uh, and I'll refer our listeners to our uh, our upcoming episode interviewing economist Tyler Bonin for more details on this. 
But one of the reasons I think that President Trump has led the charge on this trade war uh, is to deal with, to respond to the fact that China has been artificially manipulating their currency. They've been devaluing their own currency in order to entice U.S. investment in their economy. And because of their currency manipulation, it really skews the, it skews the, the balance there. And I think something I'll add to that as far as currency and exports goes is if you devalue a currency, that means that it's easier to buy that type of currency. And once you buy, so they use yuan and we use U.S. dollars. In, in order to buy Chinese products, we have to buy, I'm going to try to explain it like Tyler Bonin did. I cannot do that, but I could give a simple, maybe a simple like overview is that if we want to buy Chinese products, we first, the technical process, we buy the yuan and then we use the yuan to pay for Chinese exports. If the yuan's cheaper, that means we get more of it per US dollar. And that incentivizes us to buy more and more and more in other countries to buy more and more from China because you could get more products for less of the amount, but it still remains competitive because they've manipulated the currency in, in favor of themselves. So I don't even know that's oh. right, but I guess Tyler Bonner will tell us. But he as will. Far as I, I, can I, tell. I think that's I think that's generally correct. And of course, as from your explanation, it seems pretty clear. It's really hard to prove that that happens. And I would think it's really hard to manipulate a currency in general. Like, how well, do you... but the, the the trick here, of course, is that we're dealing with two very different economies. The United States is a relatively decentralized economy. We have some level of central management with the Federal Reserve, but it's a generally decentralized economy, and, and it's not specifically planned. A communist economy, however, is literally the opposite. It's very tightly managed, tightly controlled, and attempted to be tightly planned. So for China, it's, it's not beyond the imagination to think that they would very well be doing this. But it is why I think as of uh, May 29th, the Treasury Department, according to the Wall Street Journal, is not willing to actually declare China a currency manipulator, though most people who watch it say, yeah, they're manipulating their currency. But we don't necessarily have the proof to declare that. I think maybe an interesting analogy on a very general kind of point about decentralization and centralization Perhaps decentralization is a, a very good general principle that helps because our economy, we're still growing in GDP over time. Like we have a positive GDP growth. I think it's like maybe two to 3% it's every year. 3% of 3%. the last two quarters at least. Okay, so we're doing decent. I mean, we have a lot of debt, but still we're growing consistently in our GDP. But we, we do see some examples of very centralized governments and economies doing really well. But it seems... Correct me if you think I'm wrong. It's just an overall observation of world history. But I think that Rome at first at first was a very decentralized place. It was a republic, right? So you had a, the Senate and everything, and we still had the Senate later on. But it was a very decentralized um, location. And as you move on, it became an empire, which was very centralized because you had emperors and the, you know, the head of authority. And sure, you had the Senate, but there was plenty of corruption within that, as proved by the Gracchus brothers, or the Gracchi brothers. I'm going to make that Somebody's plural. been getting ready for a final in History uh, final. In That's history. exactly, yep, we reviewed that today. So I'm yep, going to use yep. what I know. And, but as Rome was centralized, the empire lasted for so long. And if you look at the Byzantine Empire up until like, what, 14? 1453. Thank you. 14- Oh, well, I need to know that for the final, so that's good. Probably. That's yeah, I do. When they, that's when they fell to 14 the, to the uh, Ottoman to the Turks. Turks. Yeah, but until 1453. And China, being one of the top dogs in the game, I think has the room, the wiggle room, to move around within a managed economy because they're pretty much in control of all of the things that we're buying from them. While you can't predict the future and it's very difficult to manage an economy from that kind of level, it seems that when you're at the top, it would be easier to manage these things than when you're at the bottom. Well... I'm not agreeing with managing an economy here. I'm just trying yeah. to see. I'm trying to observe, like, it, 
I, I would agree with the Austrian view more than I would agree with the, China, the Chinese view. I don't view. generally disagree with the, the examples you gave are correct as far as I know. The trouble is, though, that they are of two very different things. So True. if we bring logic, a, a logic principle in here, uh, you're, you're, you can't necessarily draw a conclusion from two, opposite, two unconnected premises. Probably good for my logic funnel. Yes. But uh, so in this case, what you have is a, you have a string of pre-modern in the definitive, in the formal sense of the term, pre-modern uh, financial systems that have some level of control. But those those don't have any kind of central bank. That's a modern development. They don't have they don't have modern currency. Instead, and they don't have trade in the same sense that we do today. There is no stock exchange. There is uh, there's very little interest. There's no capital investment like there is today. So in your Rome examples, like the decentralization, the centralization, that's true. Rome does move in those directions. But when you get to contemporary China, it's it, it's a whole nother ball game and. Um, I don't want to get too deep into it because that's a different podcast episode. Uh, sure that, that's going to start sounding a lot more like our Zizek Peterson episode, which is still our most popular. And episode. it was awesome. It was so yeah. good. I, I still, I'm just amazed that people actually willing to listen to the whole thing. Yeah. That many people really listen to the whole thing. Anyway, um, a contemporary managed economy is based on a totally different set of assumptions, and hopefully uh, next year. Um, in one of the classes, at one point or another, I'm going to make sure you read uh, Whitaker Chambers' letter to my children. And we'll, we'll walk through the foundational wrong assumptions that communism makes. And what I was trying to do with that Rome example is, is take a guess at why a managed economy has done so well thus far. What, what do you – and I'm – this yeah. factor, this, this defining factor or factors are kind of avoiding me. What, what do you think – or I guess escaping me – is the – is the factor that allows a managed economy like China to be doing so well. They're manipulating their currency. They're taking lots of the Keynesian view of economics into account, like a very centralized kind of approach, but they're doing really well with it. And they have well, a lot of control. Why the, is this? The, the trick is, I think, there that China is the, so far, only communist country. They, they are very much communist. They are still in the tradition of Mao Zedong, uh, so the, the Maoist strand of communist thought. That's, that's their view. That's still the... And they are... Their party politically is communist now, and but in reality, they are what they did beginning in the after Mao died was China began the Chinese government began loosening their controls on the economic sector, and where they began using their management was in these lighter ways. Um, it's not they're not communist in the sense of a traditional Trotsky Stalinist view that is really going to try and map out every possible industry. Uh, and they're also they, they have industries that do have some level of private property ownership. So as far as the economy goes, China is this really weird country that looks a lot like they're trying to be both communist and capitalist. And in terms of their economy, it's working great for them. Hmm. Um, but at the same time, they also have huge sections of their country that are, I mean, you can go, if you go to Beijing, you are in a global metropolis. But if you go to a village, you may suddenly step off of a train platform and into a village that looks like it's 1840 again. Yeah, and a lot, I hear terrible stories of things that happen in China as well. Like one of the, I watched this video documentary on the factories there, like the production factories of 
maybe iPhones or I don't, I'm not going to throw Apple out there, but just general production factories have nets to prevent people from committing suicide. So like they will catch you if you jump off of these rails just because I don't know, are people worked hard? Like who knows? It's not like China's going to well, tell us. Well, let's, let's, I'll at least speak to that a little bit and I'm, I'm going to We've do... kind of gone on a tangent here. We have, but I, I want to wrap this around to the moral argument that too, I think is some of the best ground that Neg has. So we can take this tangent and put it on. Oh, point. that's perfect. So, uh, as 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 good debate arguments sometimes do, uh, but part of what is going on with China in particular there is that uh, with the revolu- the Marxist revolution in 1949 in China or the communist revolution in 1949 under Mao Zedong they jettisoned all of the traditional religions of tr- religions and philosophies of China. So I know you've encountered Confucian, uh, Confucianism and Taoism at some and point in your daily. Yeah, uh, sure. I'm still I'm still a little leery of that term, but we can save that for another day. Those were all really jettisoned, and what was and they were traded for a really empty, materialistic, scientific view. Well, what you then get is the straight up normal communist method of we are going to announce a goal and we are going to work everyone until we get to that goal. Uh, this is how Mao accidentally causes a famine that kills 50 million people. They they make a terrible assumption. The goal is to produce more steel. They do it. But if you make every working age man be in a steel production plant, they are not in the rice paddies growing food. Well, So there's no food. <laughs> well, all of that to say, then what you then get in China, what you have in China over the last 20 years is a morally and spiritually empty country where they have been feeding this internal human desire for a moral and spiritual center and for answers to critical questions. They've been feeding that with this rapid addiction to Western materialism. So the answer becomes, ah, we exist to become super profitable. Well, they're becoming incredibly good at being super profitable. But China still does not have answers to those basic questions. Why, do I, why am I here? What am I supposed to do with my life? What is the purpose of life? Why do I exist with other people? What duties do I owe to my neighbor? Chinese communism has really wiped out all of the internal resources they had as a country to answer those questions. Which brings us back around to the moral arguments. Yeah, I told you. We're going we to go. get there. We got there. So... Uh, one of the biggest arguments I think I see on NEG is less on the eco- economics. Because as we've seen, hopefully, in this roundabout discussion, the economics of it are all pretty obvious. You should have as much free trade as you can because that's going to lead to the greatest exchange of goods and in the most efficient manner. But uh, one of my favorite quotes from Jesus is the statement, man shall not live by bread alone. It's the idea that only the material goods are not the only important thing. There may very well be some other things that are actually more important than material goods. And this, I think, is a really strong argument for the negative side. You know what's so cool about the moral argument being on the negative side is that th- so you can, if you follow the theory of tariffs, at least, there's a little bit of pragmatism there. Like it, It's been shown in the short term to increase employment. Or, uh, yeah, I mean, according to... To Keynes, like that's what we've seen in his article, and then he'd shift his opinion about fifty million times before he ever comes to a conclusion, which I'm not sure that he does because he's very wishy-washy about protectionism. But it's weird to see how there's some pragmatism, but there's also a heavy moral argument on the same side. Usually, you don't really see that, right. especially in Lincoln Douglas. But it's cool to see that transition into Coolidge as well. I think the moral argument is really heavy, and maybe 
should I sort of like map it out? And yeah, like, I think so. Yeah, we're both using it as we're using already it. explained it, but we right. haven't. So what, what are you seeing as the moral argument here? The moral argument is that we should not adopt unilateral free trade because hidden within the word unilateral means that we're adopting free trade regardless of what other countries do. And yes. that, that's a universal. So put the foot down, that's it. And the negative says, well, hold up, wait. Other countries do this. And the this is a list, pretty much, of all of the moral atrocities that these countries are committing. China has plenty of them. You could dig into them on the internet pretty much everywhere. And I wish we probably would have brought more examples into our outline. Yeah, I'll, but, I'll, I'll just toss in one and then turn feed it back to you. Yeah, that go for it. The one that I've been most concerned about over the last year is uh, China has been engaged, the Chinese government has been engaging again in some of the most intense religious persecution uh, anywhere in the world, where they have been rounding up millions of Christians and Muslims, putting them in concentration camps and intentionally trying to wipe out their religious convictions. Uh, so I read one story of a, uh, a Muslim man from Mongolia who was visiting China those are two separate countries and he was caught up in the net so it was the month of ramadan and this muslim man he was force-fed beer like we're talking like a beer guzzle tunnel was shoved down his throat in order to uh, somehow break his obedience to the quran that he should not drink beer i think in general but especially during daylight during ramadan and so that was that's a violation of so many human rights and so much human dignity. So back to you. Yeah. Where, where do you see this going? But the negative is saying that because of instances such as this, we should not open up unilateral free trade and fund and give money and, and aid the economy by using free trade mm -hmm. of another country that does these sorts of things and endorse it sort of with our free trade funds. And we're not going to support that, so we're going to step off and put a tariff on you because we don't support all of these things that you're doing within your country. And if Neg was going to make this argument, I think part of what Negative would need to do is find some particularly clear human rights to really lay out. Whether we're talking about a right to free press, the right to assembly, the uh, right to free economic exchange or religious freedom, whatever those rights are, you need a clear list of to say, these are the rights that we need to clearly, we can clearly recognize these are a violation of human dignity, and this is why we should not trade with this country on an even footing. Yeah, and it, it helps even the more that we are the pretty much the moral hegemon of the entire world. Like we go out there with, not to say that we're like good and perfect and everything, but we are like the, the soul, not soul, but we're the main buttress, I guess you could say for the UN. And we're the ones that outline all the human rights. Just look at our bill of rights, the constitution. I mean, um, we, Go for it. I well, see it I just, I'm, I'm, you're saying all of that, and there's a sense in which I completely agree with you. Um, I do want to make sure we go on record on the podcast, and we're not necessarily advocating that that should be the case. Nope, not saying that, that at all. But that it certainly is the case that the United States is still, uh, to use the trite phrase, the leader of the free world. Right. So, again, we're not saying... There's we no are also, and there's no shoulds here. Yeah, we are also well aware of the United Nations uh, Declaration of Human Rights and the French Revolution's Universal Declaration of Human Rights. There are lots of places where people have tried to outline those. Right. But as far as the is case goes, America at least puts its foot down pretty tough when it comes to human rights and as far as it looks on a global scale. So the fact that the U.S. federal government is the actor here I think makes it a, a little bit more, at least heavily weighted towards the negative side than if it, we were talking about policy for another country. Or if we were saying something particular about a United States company and whether a company should trade. Yeah, and 
a quick question for you because I know you're really great at making responsive. When someone refutes, one of your strong points, and in, in, at least in my view, is that you can come back and tackle that view. So it's a rebuttal to a rebuttal almost. Okay. If you were negative and you just made that moral argument for me, and I came back and said, what does free trade and trading and from an economic standpoint, giving money to these countries, how does that affect the morality of that country? Aren't people still going to commit moral atrocities in a country regardless of whether or not we're trading with them? Well, see, I would look at that and my initial response is, I mean, that there's a sense in which that's true. But there's a sense in which I, but there's a sense in which I become morally complicit at the point where I am contributing to that person's financial well-being. So let's um, say I, I know you know I, I, I thoroughly enjoy coffee beans. Uh, one of the places I've seen this argument most prevalent is in the fair trade coffee movement. Uh, which is really looking at the fact that if you go to, say, Starbucks or Dunkin' Donuts, they are buying vast quantities of beans. But they're buying their beans from major distributors all around the world. And the, the, the fair trade movement in coffee beans says their argument is essentially, look, in those major distributors of coffee beans, the local farmer is not really the one who's getting the benefit. So if you want to be a moral person who thinks that the one who buy who grows the coffee beans and went to the, the effort to make this excellent coffee bean that 10,000 miles away you are drinking, well, then you need to buy from a group that is guaranteed to send at least 70% of the profits to that farmer. And so in... Now, and this, this can get really irritating. So I don't want to make the argument too fine-tuned, but this example, I think, makes sense. Um, but this the argument then is that with our choices, we are endorsing certain moral behaviors. And through our economic choices, we are sanctioning the economic choices of the person that we're buying from. So if we disagree with an action, if we think that's an immoral action, I can say that to a company or to a country all day long. But when I actually shut off the flow of money, so uh, in my case, I'm, I, I get upset at Netflix's uh, moral messaging in some of their movies. Uh, they've been really heavy-handed lately. Well, my wife and I ended up deciding we're just going to stop our subscription to Netflix. And does that mean that the, the movies themselves or the way that Netflix... Particularly the Netflix, the movies that are made for Netflix by Netflix. Oh, like okay. A lot of them have, uh, I mean, they, goodness gracious, they made a documentary with, all about AOC. Yeah, that was Netflix's, yeah, right? That yeah, was I hilarious. So. I, I need to see that. I, I need to see that. The uh, I, didn't, I didn't actually watch that one, so I shouldn't rag on it too badly because I haven't seen it. But the of the ones that I've watched, they tend to promote a... Uh, an LGBTQIA plus narrative that I'm I'm not really interested in in my entertainment. Maybe in reading an essay about someone's personal experience, that's fine. I'm not looking for that to be the dominant thread in every TV show that I watch. Netflix has a habit of bringing that into as many TV shows as they can. Well, I can blog about it, whatever. I can tell people that's fine. From this argument, this moral economics argument, I really don't oppose what they're doing as long as I am sending my money to them. Yeah, so, and I can see that relates almost fully. I'm going to add something to that. Because in your distinction as a consumer for Netflix, you prefer different things that from you, what you watch on TV versus what you read maybe, yeah. you know, like on the weekends. So your reading and your viewership entertainment are different. But as far as a morality perspective goes from a global standpoint, the morals seem to be more black and white. Like America doesn't have an alternative choice and can't necessarily oh. block off their subscription. But 
or no. and again, terrace wouldn't block off this completely because again, it's a it's a restriction. It's not uh, and, and, completely cutting the flow either. Well, and let me just make the distinction a little sharper there. It's not that I'm necessarily looking to read like erotic short stories or anything about LGBTQ stuff. <laughs> That's not what I'm saying. I'm yeah. saying I would be I, I'm not opposed to reading someone's personal narrative about how here's how I came to this conviction. Like that's fine. That's an interesting story that I'd love to read. That's not what I'm looking for when I go to like watch a TV show necessarily. Yeah. But in terms of the United States, I, I mean I think if if you really impact this out, this becomes a really interesting thing. Um, so particularly currently, the United States has done a lot of things to say we affirm women's rights and women's equality throughout the world. But we're also a huge trading partner with Saudi Arabia, which has one of the most oppressive regimes towards women. Well, so if we're going to be morally consistent, maybe instead of having a great oil agreement with Saudi Arabia, we then say, you know what? Because until the House of Saud uh, brings in a reasonable level of equality between men and women in Saudi Arabia, uh, we're, and then, then puts that in their law code, we're going to have a 15% tariff on Saudi Arabian oil. And as the American nation, we're just going to know that means our gasoline is probably going to be more expensive. And this is a great reductio ad absurdum argument for the affirmative to make back at the negative is because... And this is a great, so the affirmative you don't even really see being the pragmatic side usually, at least in Lincoln Douglas. This is a crazy flip on a resolution that, um, that again, I find really Which, of course, Coolidge is not just LD. I mean, they're trying no, to do right. something I different. I keep saying but, LD because yeah. I'm so used to it, and so right, right. my natural inclination is to compare and contrast. But I think this is really cool because the negative can come back and say, okay, fine, you want to restrict trade with China because they did X, Y, and Z. Well, that means if you want to be morally consistent, do it with this country and this country and this country and this country, and guess what? No economy. So, like, it may sound terrible because right, we, we would right. be affirming all of these things, but then we have no economy. Well, of course, and then another piece that would then be a quick extension of that would be to say, well, who are we to then judge that other country? Who are we to say that – Now, and this is one of the tricks where at the point where you say, okay, we affirm, say, out of something a little less objective um, – Maybe we say we affirm a universal global minimum wage of the equivalent of 12 U.S. dollars an hour. Well, who are – and then another country may very well come back and say, who are you, rich Americans, to define what a good wage is in our country over here? And, and this really that, – that could be the affirmative saying, look, we're not, mo we're not mandating morality for any other country. Instead, we are just opening up the avenue for trade. And we are trading with we're trading using dollars because we can't agree on other things, but we can't agree on the price. And, and I, we do that freely. I can openly sense your escape to a less objective example, such as the minimum wage. So <laughs> don't think that got biased. But um, yeah, I think if I were debating on your side of the resolution there, I would totally fly to something like minimum wage to avoid having to deal with the objectivity and subjectivity of the more sensitive issues that can't be clearly black and white defined about who can judge and who can't judge. But I don't know. I think we've pretty much tired out the, the point as far I, as morality I, I goes. I think we have. Um, There's one more I think we need to get to, and that's okay. war. Oh. Because I see two yep. arguments on both sides. This is one of the arguments that in debate sometimes these just come up where you can see that this side would promote uh, – sorry, would decrease the amount of war. This side would decrease the amount of war. And maybe yep. it's not 
would decrease or increase, but it's who has the better method of decreasing. You know what I mean? So if you want to speak on that first, because I've got a whole spiel I'm going to go into. Okay, but. sure. I'll, I'll at least run through what I found. Um, I, I had not thought of this until this morning. I was trying to read up to prep for this episode. Um, Reason.com has an article called Will Today's Global Trade Cause Wars? Uh, the uh, the SCMP.com, is the, uh, that's the South China newspaper, and I'm blanking on the rest of their name. Uh, but they have a they have a, a journalist who is claiming trade wars directly cause world wars, and they go so far as to say history shows this. I'm a little doubtful. The Financial Times ran a piece arguing the same thing. The argument's fairly straightforward. Uh, they're looking back at World War One and suggesting that uh, tied into the tight knit diplomacy around World War One was a set of trade war like posturing, like we're currently seeing between China and the United States. And the argument then becomes, well, look what happened in World War One. Trade war contributed to the collapse of diplomacy that then caused World War One. How it's not a hard measure to say. Well, we can't beat them diplomatically. We're going to go physically to war. So the argument that I'm seeing uh, here really on, on AF is suggesting that uh, trade wars can lead to hot wars. Therefore, we should not have trade wars. And on NEG, I would probably want to say, I'd want to look at this and say, just because that happened in World War One does not mean it will happen anywhere else. I have something to add to the NEG side. Please that maybe this, and of course, there's a there's an interpretation that's probably more viable on one of the sides, and we would have to dig into this and probably have a debate just about this in general to really come to a more solid conclusion. But I can see the negative coming back and saying, war is inevitable. War will happen, and countries are going to disagree, and there's going to be military involved. But before we get to the military, tariffs and economic sanctions and restrictions on trade are our most effective form of soft power to help prevent war and not need to make use of hard power and military and fighting and violence and giving up. So establishing unilateral free trade and giving up these restrictions, these, this economic leverage that we have. Oh, I like this. Yeah, this is what I was thinking of earlier. This is the one I wanted to tell you about. Giving up our economic leverage and position to use soft power would make us resort to violence in more situations, and that would, you know, that would be terrible. Having, but again, that you could call it a slippery slope if you want. It seems relatively straightforward to me. I'm sure someone else would have a great reputation to that. But that's my path of thought for the negative. But affirmative can come back and say, no, if we're if we're free trading with people, actually, no. Because I was going to say, if, we're free, if everyone's free trading, then all of our hands are tied because we need this from someone and we need this from someone and like we can't do it. But guess what? It's unilateral. So no, not everyone else is going to be free trading with us. Which so, maybe gives rise, gives access to an argument we skipped earlier from, for the from John Maynard Keynes on NEG, who really ties tariffs to a government as he argues that tariffs are a tool in a governmental toolbox to seek the national interest, which is exactly what President Trump is using them for. Go ahead. Keep all right. going. Yeah. He thinks that President Trump thinks that these tariffs and the trade war is actually all about seeking America's interest. So I would argue on NEG, you could have a really interesting argument. I, I think it'd be really interesting to take President Trump's, I think it was his first inaugural speech, but it's called his America First speech. Take that speech, pair it with Keene's idea of tariffs with nationalism, and really have tariffs as a tool that is useful for seeking national interest when your trade partners are not playing fairly. And if we go AF, we lose access to that tool. And I think Adam Smith would come back from a more economic perspective in the last quote that I collected from, from his book, The Wealth of Nations. He says, the natural interests and inclinations of man coincide as exactly with the public interests of society, filling that in there, as in all other cases. So 
He's saying the exact opposite. He's saying that the consumer at, at the bottom, I guess, of the food chain here, that everyone, oh, the producers being at the top, giving everything to everyone, the natural interests of the individual eventually meet the greater good. But what we're saying from the Keynesian view, this again is relating, I guess, warfare and economics maybe a little bit too separately, but maybe we can make a connection here, is that the regulation is necessary because the world is not perfect or ideal as the affirmative is making it out to be. And we cannot give up this valuable economic leverage that has saved us, if you can find examples, in this situation, in this situation, in this situation, and prevented violent escalation in these areas. I think there's a lot to be said there, and I, I think we have probably said everything we should cover in this particular episode. This uh, was a good one. Any, any last thoughts before we wrap this thing up? I think that this is a really great resolution, so anyone from the Coolidge Foundation listening to this, I think this is a phenomenal topic for debate. There's tons of ground on each side, and it was really well chosen. I'm so excited for the Coolidge Cup. I just cannot wait to go to Vermont. And I'm really happy with this episode, the way it turned out, and I hope all the debaters listening to this would please take the time to send us some feedback, because I would absolutely love that. I know Josh, you would as well. I would. And um, yeah, I re it also, refer to our interview with Tyler Bonin later on, because he has a lot to say about this resolution from an economic standpoint. He's an economic genius. He, just, he can explain things really well and has really great insight. But I'm happy with this episode, and I can't wait to debate this resolution. Uh, it's going to be really good. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for joining us on this episode of What's the Res? Um, I'm both excited and a little bit sad to announce that this is the final show in season one. Uh, this will be, by the time uh, Bonin's interview drops and this one drops, we will have a total of 34 episodes that have run from the month of February, February through May in 2019. We've had over 2,700 downloads in, yeah. what is that, February, uh, March, April, May, four months. That's pretty fantastic. Yeah, we're really grateful for everyone that listens to this podcast and enjoys it. I'm, I'm glad to see the debaters out there are finding value in our content. I think so. I've had a lot of people who are, uh, I've, I think we have, we have a bunch of middle schoolers and high schoolers who listen to it. Uh, and if any of them are listening, I want to make sure everyone hears very clearly that this is a joint venture between Ethan and myself with Noah as editor. Uh, so this is Ethan's podcast just as much as it is mine. So just in case there was ever any doubt there. And Noah probably listens to more of our episodes than any else because oh, he edits story. every single one and that means he needs to listen to the whole track cut out the ac that we have in the background <laughs> apply the noise gate apply the compressor play with the equalizers noah i know you're going to be listening to this because we're sending this to you in a couple of minutes yep so we wanted to thank you on the show as well for doing all of your amazing work for us it's also uh we, we about halfway through this first season we made a uh, a programming change and we began using noah's rap beats as as our musical intro and outro uh so if you found uh, I hope you've enjoyed the, the music side of our, our podcast. Uh, that, those are all Noah Berman originals. Uh, so I'm very excited that this experiment has been has gone so well. We started this having no idea how to podcast. Yeah. And I, I, I think we've, we've come up with something that people at least enjoy and enjoy coming back to, and we certainly enjoy it. Uh, so we will be back in July with season two because our school's a year-round school. We're about to go on summer break. And we'll be back in July. We'll start season two up with a bunch of advice episodes for our new students because we'll have a bunch of novices starting up with us this year. And fresh out of the Coolidge Cup, too. Yep. Ready to debate. Yep. And, uh, but, and as of September, we'll be bringing uh, you new resolution analysis for, uh, for those uh, NSDA resolutions, which I'm really – I don't know if I've told you about this or not, but uh, I'm very excited about seeing what we do with the uh, LD novice one next year 
in light of all these revelations about Dr. Martin Luther King that I've been reading oh, about this week. So, fun times coming ahead there. But have no fear if uh, What's the Res has become a regular part of your, your life. Uh, we, we will be coming up with a ton of additional episodes this summer. Uh, Ethan, do you have any in particular you've been thinking about and you've been excited, you're, you're, you want to mention? Yes, I do. There's one in particular I wanted to mention. I've been reading through John Stuart Mill essay on utilitarianism or it's called utilitarianism and i have loved this essay one of the particular things i really like about it is the argument structure that mill uses in order to make his points and i just cannot wait to do an episode just on this essay explaining what utilitarianism is and then possibly going into the argument structure in a separate episode of of how he makes his points so that he can take a really complex idea and and help people understand it really well because i think he would he would have been or i expect that he was a really good teacher back then as far as getting his ideas across and I just discovered this argument structure. I'm sure you've seen it before, Josh. And I just cannot wait to share it with everyone because I thought it was really cool. Uh, this summer, I'm going to be trying to come up with an episode that's really outlining something we talked about a few episodes back, the philosophy of personalism right. and where that comes in and how that can be a really great place for debaters to go when they need a solid grounding for human dignity and human rights. Yeah. So th there's so many good episodes coming next yep. season. I can't wait. It's well, and even these will be, uh, I suspect throughout the summer, we'll both be traveling different places, uh, but we'll, we'll have episodes coming up here and there. They'll be tagged on, uh, on the different feeds as summer episodes and we'll eventually organize those into something different, I'm sure. Yeah. I, I do also want to mention that on the 1st of July, we will have a big announcement that we'll make about our show that we'll push out across all platforms. So if you follow us on Instagram or on Twitter at what's the res underscore, you'll be in the first group of people to see that announcement, and we'll be, we'll be sure to spread that across our various episodes. It's going to be great. It will be. Ladies and gentlemen, you've been listening to another episode of What's the Res? My name is Josh Herring. My co-host, Ethan Dells, and I want to thank you for tuning in to our podcast this season. We look forward to being back with you next season as new resolutions are developed and we learn more in the, about debate. Yeah. So, everyone, thank you so much for listening. And were you going to say anything else? Or is that... Uh, yeah. That was... Uh, let's see. Oh, yep. I, I was, feel like I just I cut was. you off. My bad. Yep, that's okay. Go ahead. In the meantime, if you, uh, if you do like what you've been listening to, head over to iTunes. Leave us a five-star review. That's still the best way to help people find our show. If you want to get in touch with us, you can email us at whatstheres at gmail.com, or you can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at whatstheres underscore. Until next time. Work hard, speak well, and seek the truth.